Hello, I'm Oliver Colling, and this is my 70s TV childhood. Stand by for action. to launch Stingray. Don't worry, you are listening to the right podcast. I just thought I'd replace our usual theme tune with one which is very relevant to this episode. Hello, and welcome to My 70s TV Childhood, where, indeed, as Commander Shaw has just promptly reminded us, in the next half hour, anything can happen. Although probably nothing quite as exciting or outrageous as most of the plot lines of Stingray. This is a podcast devoted to remembering what it was like to be a child growing up in 1970s Britain and the part that television played in many of our childhoods. Stingray was made in the 1960s, but is very much a part of my childhood TV memories, as ITV, very much like the BBC, appeared to have a policy of repeating children's TV shows again and again and again over a number of decades, So it's not surprising that some of my favourite programmes date from the 60s or even the 50s in some cases. What is notable is that many of these shows which I loved as a child were created by Gerry Anderson and his wife Sylvia, who were responsible for a whole string of successful programmes, including Stingray. Gerry Anderson was born in 1929, so it was a similar age to my parents, who were both born a year later in 1930. But I think the similarity ends there. After national service in the RAF, Anderson went to work in the film industry, and in 1955 started AP Films with his partner, Arthur Provis. Their first two series were very popular and well-received. They were both low-budget puppet shows much loved by those who grew up in the late 1950s. The first, Twizzle, was about a doll whose arms could, well, twizzle around, apparently. And the second was Torchy the Battery Boy, about a boy who was, well, made out of a battery. Now, I've never seen either programme, but those of a certain age do speak fondly about them. Jerry Anderson had ambition, He wanted to make big-budget live-action films, and he and APF saw puppet shows as a way of demonstrating their skills and getting into the big time. Unfortunately, what commissioners wanted from APF was more puppet shows, 
And ultimately, the company hooked up with Lou Grade, whose ITV company, ATV, held the ITV franchise for the Midlands region of England. Jerry Anderson entered into what was to prove a long and very fruitful relationship with Lou Grade in the early 60s. And very soon, those programmes that I loved and remember so well began to come off the production line. I think the oldest one I remember was called Fireball XL5. Now, Fireball XL5 was a space rocket. Some of our younger listeners may need to be reminded that during the 1960s and 1970s, space and space travel were hugely popular subjects in popular culture, reflecting the real-life space race of the times, where the USA and the USSR were constantly trying to outdo each other in sending people into space and achieving new feats of bravery and endurance, ultimately leading to the first moon landings. So space was in, and Fireball XL5 tapped into this, and also followed a theme that was to become familiar in the non-live action Anderson shows. Now, I'm not sure when the term supermarionation was first used in the opening titles, but a succession of these shows were made using fairly lifelike puppets, Um, And they also build the characters as though they were stars of the show themselves. So Steve Zodiac, the square-jawed pilot of Fireball XL5, was also billed in the credits as the star of the show. Fireball XL5 doesn't live on in my memory as keenly as some of the other shows created by the Andersons. At the start of this episode, we heard the opening sequence to Stingray, which was one of my favourites as a child. A quick reminder for you of the basic premise. Stingray was a submarine operated by WASP, the World Aquanaut Security Patrol, responsible for keeping the seas safe at some point in the distant future. Safe against what, you might think. But the undersea world of the future turned out to be one full of hidden civilizations, giant sea creatures and impending natural disasters. What I loved about it was that there was action right from the start in the opening sequence. Marineville, which is where Stingray was based, would disappear into an underground bunker when threatened with attack. How cool was that? And the pilot of Stingray. Is that right? What do you call someone who drives a submarine-type vehicle? Can't be a driver, can it? So I'll stick at pilot. Um, The pilot of Stingray was Troy Tempest, yet another square-jawed all-American hero. And his co-pilot was Phones, who sounded vaguely like he came from Texas or somewhere in the southern US. Troy also had a love interest, Marina, who was some kind of glamorous mermaid who could breathe and swim underwater without any air tanks. Oh, and I think she was mute as well. I also seem to remember that Commander Shaw's daughter, also had a thing about Troy, which was a bit confusing to a five- or six-year-old. Marina also featured in a rather expensive-looking closing sequence where a 1960s crooner sang a song about her. Marina, Aquamarina, what are these strange enchantments that start when you are near? Marina, Aquamarina, 
Why can't you whisper the words that my heart is longing to hear? And so on and so on. Well, I think in terms of not being able to whisper the words my heart is longing to hear, being a mute mermaid might make that a problem. But all in all, it still was very glamorous. I didn't realise until much later, having grown up watching Stingray in black and white, that the show was one of the first ever to be made in colour in the UK. The idea being that it would be attractive to US audiences, most of whom were used to watching colour programmes at that point, and that proved to be the case. Stingray wasn't the only Jerry Anderson puppet show which I've got vivid memories of. There were several others, including the, well, how should I put it, unique Joe 90. done any research on this one so i may have this slightly wrong joe our hero was a nine-year-old boy whose father was a scientist working for some big international secret agency called win w-i-n which i'm sure stood for something world intelligence network maybe anyway joe's dad invented a machine called the big rat which was a bit like a giant slinky toy into which Joe would climb and put on some special glasses, through which he could be programmed with special skills. What this meant was that our nine-year-old hero could be a James Bond-style secret agent, which was pretty impressive to young children, and something we could all aspire to now. Looking back, there is something a bit creepy about the whole idea, sending a nine-year-old out on deadly missions, and I think in some cases Joe actually carried a gun and may have actually killed a few people along the way. Imagine Joe's dad having to explain that to social services, secret agent or not. Anyway, I loved it. And the whole idea that kids could do something like this just by wearing special glasses and sitting inside a giant revolving slinky was really, really attractive. Unfortunately, there was one regrettable side effect of the show's popularity. Any boy who was unfortunate enough to have to wear national health glasses at school inevitably picked up the nickname Joe 90. And for at least one person I know, that nickname lasted well into secondary school too. The darkest and most brutal of the Anderson puppet shows is another which has imprinted itself onto my and many others' memories. Once again, it was not afraid to include death and destruction in its storylines, or to strike terror into young viewers in its opening sequence.
Captain Scarlet, or Captain Scarlet and the Mysterons, to give it its full name, was a series following the interplanetary war between the Mysterons, who lived on Mars, and Spectrum, who represented the Earth. Yet again, there was some kind of global representative Earth government body, so in a way, that was a comforting thought. For those who don't remember, Captain Black, one of the characters, inadvertently destroyed a Mistron city during an exploration mission to Mars. Well, when I say inadvertently, there was a hint of James T. Kirk and Star Trek about it, in that when the Mistrons pointed some kind of telescope at Captain Black's space vehicle, just to sort of see what, what he was doing, he immediately opened fire with all weapons, destroying the city. Anyway, the upshot of that was that Captain Black was then taken over by the Mistrons and became the, the main baddie in the show, directing the Mistrons' war against the Earth, whereas Captain Scarlet developed the rather useful attribute of becoming indestructible. Now, I seem to remember that this was quite a complicated sequence of events involving another captain, Captain Blue, I think, who managed to take over the dead Captain Scarlet's body and therefore become indestructible. Now, I may have got that wrong and missed out bits there, but I'm sure some of our listeners will be able to put me straight. What this did mean, though, was that Captain Scarlet inevitably met at least one grisly death each episode. And I remember him being shot, dying in space crashes, being crushed to death, all of which was fascinating to small children. But then he was miraculously brought back to life. Inevitably, this led to some bad publicity, and it was thought by some that children might copy Captain Scarlet and think that they were indestructible. So what the programme makers did was to put a short voiceover at the start of the programme. Captain Scarlet is indestructible. You are not. Remember this. Do not try to imitate him. Well, that told us then. Even at age six, I didn't think I'd be able to fly in a spaceship, crash or get shot and then survive. Similar concerns were regularly being raised in the 70s and the likes of Batman and even Tom and Jerry were subject to campaigns demanding that they be banned for inciting violence. Fast forward 20 years, the Simpsons' itchy and scratchy show parody demonstrates how long that debate has gone on for. Anyway, back to Captain Scarlet. I'm not sure who, if anyone, actually won the war between Earth and the Mistrons, but it was very entertaining while it lasted. Oh yes, and I shouldn't forget Cloud Base, which was a sort of floating aircraft carrier in the sky above the clouds, so Cloud Base. Get it, yep. Um, from which the Earth was defended by a group of female crack pilots called the Angels. Destiny Angel, Symphony Angel, and please let me know, because I can't remember who the third one was. And I'm sure some of you do. If you want to tell me who the other Angel was, or share any memories of Super Marionation, or indeed anything else, you can do so on our blog www.my70stvchildhood.com Tweet at 70stvchildhood or email me, oliver at my70stvchildhood.com
So moving on from Captain Scarlet and the Mistrons, I want to spend the rest of this episode remembering my absolute all-time favourite Jerry Anderson puppet show. And I have a feeling I'm not the only one who loved this one. Four, three, two, one. Thunderbirds are go. What can I say about Thunderbirds? It has everything. A handsome, clean-cut family, spending all their time doing good for the world. Lots of space-based action. Comic interludes for a British female secret agent and a chauffeur. A selection of good villains. And of course, a whole fleet of incredible vehicles and vessels, the Thunderbirds of the title. For those who don't remember the show, and I don't suppose there are many of you listening, The action revolved around a mysterious organisation called International Rescue, who seemed to always show up just in the nick of time whenever trouble struck. And, well, people needed rescuing. No one knew who they were, or where they came from. Only that they were grateful to them for always saving the day. I think this is at the heart of the show's enduring popularity – Who could resist the idea of doing good things whilst living on what appeared to be a Caribbean island and then flying off in your Thunderbird to save the world? What every kid wants to do. I also think that the characterisation was superior to many of the shows aimed at young audience of this time. So, who were the characters? Do you remember? Here's a reminder. The main protagonists were the Tracy family, whose head was Jeff Tracy, a secretive millionaire who lived on Tracy Island with his sons. I'm not sure what happened to Mrs. Tracy, but I'm sure she'd have been proud of her sons anyway. The sons were Scott, whose main role was as pilot of Thunderbird 1, which was a sort of rocket which could get to anywhere in the world really quickly. But I don't think it was able to go into space. Memorably, it used to take off from under the Tracy's swimming pool, which opened up to reveal the cave below. Then there was Virgil, who was my favourite, largely because he got to fly Thunderbird 2, which was an enormous aircraft capable of lifting heavy objects like fallen bridges or pylons. And it could also carry a special pod, which contained Thunderbird 4, which was a yellow submarine. No, no, not that one. Usually piloted by Gordon Tracy. Now, I and many thousands of children of the 60s and 70s had a dinky toy Thunderbird 2 with a separate pod containing a little Thunderbird 4. I really enjoyed playing with my Thunderbird 2 and had hours of fun with it. But until thinking about this episode, I had a big unanswered question. Why was my Thunderbird 2 model blue when Thunderbird 2 was clearly green? Even though we had a black and white TV, even I knew it was green because it featured in comics and annuals I had. 
Now, I'm sure I'm not the only one who had a blue version. And apparently, when the toys were being designed, a child psychologist had advised that Dinky change the colour from green to blue, as children didn't like green toys. Now, what do you think of that? Well, I suppose it was the 60s, and some very strange things happened then. But changing Thunderbird 2 from green to blue takes some explaining. Back to the Tracy family. There were two other brothers, John, who seemed to spend most of his time aboard Thunderbird 5, which was a space station in orbit circling the Earth. John's task was to spend most of his time monitoring the emergency radio signals of organisations across the world, looking for signs of impending disasters which might require International Rescue's presence to help save lives. As well as probably being illegal in most countries, I always thought that John's job and his life, spent seemingly alone in the space station, must have been incredibly dull, only interspersed by the odd disaster which gave him the excuse to phone his dad on Earth, which he did via portraits on the wall of the house on Tracy Island, whose eyes flashed whenever someone called. Confused? I'm not surprised. Apologies for that, but it it did all seem to make perfect sense at the time. The other brother was Alan, who seemed to just hang about most of the time, unless he was required to pilot Thunderbird 3, a powerful and, in my opinion, woefully underutilised space rocket, which mainly sat in its hangar, waiting for some excuse for Alan to go into space. As well as the family, we had a resident scientist, Brains, who was, as you might guess, incredibly clever, and was also the first person I remember on TV who had a visible stammer. And there was also the rather glamorous Tintin, whose role was never quite made clear. Although she did use to help Brains in the lab and always join Jeff and the boys for cocktails by their swimming pool, Thinking back, I wonder, was there anything going on between Jeff and Tintin? Hmm. The other main characters were Lady Penelope, a British aristocratic secret agent who worked for International Rescue, together with her chauffeur, Parker, whose standard response of, yes, my lady, was often imitated by children and was the basis for several very juvenile jokes, none of which I'll repeat here. Lady Penelope was driven around in a pink Rolls Royce, which also contained a huge arsenal of weapons. So a bit like a chauffeur-driven James Bond. But the pairing of Lady Penelope and Parker also provided many of the comic interludes in the plot. There was also a recurring villain, The Hood, who was oriental in appearance. But personally, I preferred the episodes where the team had to fight the elements or a natural disaster. A collapsing bridge or a sinking ship provided much more drama for me than a devious villain plotting International Rescue's downfall. So why does it stand out so much in my 70s TV childhood? As I mentioned, the simple triumph of good against evil is always a powerful draw. But I think that the Andersons' use of semi-realistic puppets, combined with the odd bit of live action, drew children into the drama and the noisy, exciting sequences involving the various Thunderbirds were exciting and memorable. And no matter what death or destruction faced the Tracy family, they always came out on top and celebrated together at the end of each episode.
None of the darkness of Captain Scarlet or Joe Knighty here. Just a good, hard-working family saving the world. Did you enjoy Thunderbirds or any other of the Andersons productions? Let me know at www.my70stvchildhood. Tweet at 70stvchildhood. Or email me, oliver at my70stvchildhood.com. That's all for now. Take care and join me again soon for more from My 70s TV Childhood. Oh, and please don't forget, Captain Scarlet is indestructible. You are not.